0: Welcome to the Rennie Podcast, a podcast about the real estate market and the people connected by it. We seek to empower our listeners to make informed decisions while providing context for the real estate world around them. We hope that with every episode, you become a little more knowledgeable and a lot more curious. Hello everyone, I'm Justine Liu, a Managing Broker at Rennie, and today we're going to be spotlighting our most recent intelligence publication, our Spring 2023 edition of The Rennie Landscape, which is also known in the industry as The Little Red Book. For those of us who are less familiar with it, The Rennie Landscape is a semi-annual publication that our Intel team produces and tracks a variety of factors that directly and indirectly impact Metro Vancouver's housing market. As a host of this discussion, today isn't about me, 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 but it's about I, I, I. Immigration, inflation, and interest rates. So with me today is Ryan Berlin, our Senior Economist and Director of Intelligence at Rennie, and Ryan Wise, our Senior Analyst with our Intel team. Welcome, Ryan. Ryan.
1: Hey, Justine. Hey, how's everyone doing?
0: Everyone's doing good, I think. This is our first landscape of the year. Mm-hmm. Very exciting.
2: It is, yes. And this is our 50th podcast, <laughs> yes. Renny podcast, which can't is exciting. can't believe it's 50 already. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Time flies.
0: Time does fly. So with that, let's just get right into it. Before we start, I want to ask you, Ryan, in a nutshell, can you tell me what the Rennie landscape is?
2: Yeah, we've been producing the Rennie landscape now for... Uh, About five years, Mm -hmm. and the genesis of it was just sort of looking at the information that was available on our housing market here in Metro Vancouver, and we just sort of identified a gap. Like there's, you know, up until you know the point where we were producing this, we began producing this report. um, Most of the information that was produced and shared about the housing market was very much squarely focused. On the housing market. So, and we talk about it all the time on this uh, on the Runny Renny podcast: sales and listings and prices and all of those traditional real estate metrics, which tell you the what's of the market, but they don't really get into the whys, like what is influencing all of these things that we're seeing at the local level. And so that's where that's sort of the the space that the Renny landscape fills is to look at the wide variety of factors that influence the housing market here from demographics to economics and um, the labor market, financial markets, government policy, uh, trends in uh, credit and debt markets, um, all of those things. And how does it distill down to what we're seeing on the ground here in this region in in residential real estate? So that's what it's about. And it's written... For anybody that has an interest in real estate, um, you know, it helps if you have a little bit of an understanding of what makes things tick in this region, but you don't, you don't need to have that as, mm-hmm. a, as a foundation. Um, so if you're a buyer, you're a seller, you're a realtor, you're a developer, you're just somebody who is interested in what's going on here, maybe you're a policymaker, um, I think this report could be of interest to you. Um, and, uh, and we try to have a little bit of fun (laughs) when we write it. Uh, so there's some humor, what we would consider to be humor. Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, yeah, twice, it comes out twice a year. And, uh, I think it's, it's helped to contribute to, um, you know, a better understanding of what's happening in, in this region's housing market. Mm -hmm.
0: And so where can people find this little red book?
1: Yeah, there's a digital copy on Rennie.com. I think it's on the homepage right now and lives on Rennie.com slash intelligence.
0: Great. So for anybody who is interested and curious as to viewing what the Little Red book is, definitely take a dive on Renny.com slash intelligence to find it. So let's get into our first I, which is immigration. <laughs> so Ryan, why don't you tell me a little bit more about what that means and how you take taken a dive into that in the landscape?
1: Yeah, sure. So um, Im- population growth and immigration it's really been the news a lot lately and um, I know we hear a lot about the federal government's immigration targets those permanent resident targets so they keep uh, increasing them um, last year the target was four hundred thirty thousand net permanent resident additions all the way up to five hundred thousand for 2025 and those are sort of the, some really big numbers they're you know more than we've ever seen before in Canada um, and that really is what's driving our population growth, but it's only really one small part of immigration. Um, so last year we surpassed that target; we hit 437,000 PRs, uh, PR admissions last year. A lot of those people are already here as temporary, um, they're students, they're temporary foreign workers, things like that. Um, so even though a lot of those people are already here, we actually saw much higher net international migration. So we issued uh, 1.2 million permits for, uh, temporary migrants. Yeah. yeah. So plus 400,000, that's over 1.6 million permits were issued last year. Some of these people were renewals or we're going, you know, from student mm-hmm. temporary foreign worker or temporary foreign worker, permanent resident, things like that. Um, so we, and then of course some people are leaving as well. So when we do net international migration, Canada hit 1 million people last year, which is an incredible, Incredible wow. number. Yeah. That
2: is. You have some good context for that as well. <laughs> yeah. So the
1: U.S. also did just over 1 million uh, people net international migration. Again, they're a country 10 times the size of ours. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, it's it's pretty wild. Uh, and so as a result, total population growth last year for Canada was 1.05 million. So more than 1 million people. That's a record. We've never seen a million people additionally in Canada before and a growth rate equal to 1957 the last time we had a growth rate that high Mm -hmm. uh, which of course was during the baby boom uh, and also periods of big migration as well
2: and the context now is so different because if we're going to grow at all we need migration because Mm -hmm. we're at the point now where just as many people are dying as are being born every year
1: and in fact Mm -hmm. in bc we have more deaths than births, so we had negative natural increase last year in bc um and yeah for bc we grew we our net international migration was over 150,000 again a record and our population growth was 147,000 so net international migration made up more than our population growth last year which is pretty stunning
2: these numbers are so big and every time i hear yeah. them all i can think about is how many homes do we need (laughs) to accommodate this growth, right? It's a, it's, it's a serious challenge.
1: Yeah. And I think what's even more striking. So the permanent resident target for this coming year is 465,000. So for 2023, again, a big jump over last year uh, and one piece of the, the uh, migration puzzle. Um, And we have the first two months of data in and we're over 100,000 for Canada. So like, a quarter almost of the target for the year so in january february hundred thousand. those are the two highest months ever for pr admissions Uh, and again it's astounding the size of these numbers
0: just for clarity i'm just curious um the number is it a hundred thousand say households or people or people (laughs) People, yeah okay so not individual family groups
2: but you could translate it you know fairly easily if you use um you know uh, 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 you know a two persons per household mm-hmm. number you're talking about 50,000 households mm-hmm. there nationally. So it, it's a it's a big number it's yeah. a big number mm-hmm.
1: And um, Canada's projected to grow at a pretty incredible pace too and again almost entirely through net migration. so we have some UN data for the next 20 years. Uh, comparing like G20 countries and how they're going to grow. And at the bottom end, Japan is projected to lose a lot, of, about 12% of its population. Uh, and in the G20, I think Saudi Arabia is projected have the highest growth, a mix of um, net migration and natural increase. Canada is sort of at the upper end of that, that projection from the UN. Um, but it's pretty much entirely through net migration. And we look at net migration as a share of population. Canada is projected to grow by more than any other country on earth over the next 20 years.
2: Yeah, I feel like that's almost not context that many people are aware of, <laughs> that we're growing, that, that it's that significant. And I think it speaks to something that we've almost had our head in the sand about over the years that we, we, sh- we have seen coming, but we've sort of failed to acknowledge in any kind of real way. And that is that we have declining birth rates, but also significantly aging populations across the globe, and particularly in industrialized countries, which is why mm-hmm. uh, Japan's population is is shrinking so much.
1: Yeah, and a lot of countries' birth rates have really come down, and death rates are increasing because boomers are getting older. So I think it's important um, to remember the context for why the federal government is doing it, like what their goal is in bringing in all this migration. Again, these this aging labor force. Um, you know, so it's important to remember you know, why why is the federal government doing this? What is their goal for bringing in? uh this this many people through Mm -hmm. migration it's again we have this aging labor force people are retiring out of the workforce and in order to keep our workforce growing in order to keep our economy growing we need to be bringing people in uh, to sort of match that and you know we've talked a lot on this podcast about about these targets and about these these initiatives but really it's this it's this aging population this aging labor force that we're trying to sort of backfill um you know the share of the population, the working age population over fifty five, uh, has gone from twenty five years ago. It was like twenty six percent of that population, and now it's thirty nine percent. It's it's mm. a much larger share as, as people get older, and so the the intent for the government and with these targets is to sort of bring this labor force back and it's back through migration um and they're targeting uh, you know workers to come in and students as well Mm -hmm. um to keep that labor force growing
2: which is yeah you in some ways like a uniquely canadian thing because i mean even in the us which is like historically been a place that has welcomed immigrants we've seen their immigration rate really slow down over the past decade or so, and, I mean, Canada has one of the highest immigration rates in the world, mm-hmm. um, and and I think that there, you know, we'll we'll start to see the benefits over time as our working age population gets filled out. The typical immigrant is twenty eight years old, and I'm not sure if everybody realizes that, but seventy percent of immigrants who come to Canada are in the economic class, so they come with a certain skill set mm-hmm. and a certain education profile that is really conducive to contributing to our economy, both in terms of the services that are provided, the goods that are produced, and also to the tax base. So it's, it's a real benefit, and I think we're, we're fortunate to have the focus on, um, on that aspect of our economy that many other countries don't.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, sort of the, the short profile of the immigrant is they're young, they're skilled, and they're here to work. And for us, it's uh, a question of, you know, are we building enough housing for these people? And, you know, we bring that back to the housing market. And uh, I would say the short answer to that question is, no, we're not building enough housing. No, we are not. We certainly aren't. Um, And so, again, over the past 25 years, we, we ran against our models, sort of how much we've built... Uh, in terms of net housing additions so how much we've built in housing versus how much we've demolished uh, in Vancouver we actually have a pretty high demolition rate because so much of our our new development is knocking down sort of underused housing and, mm-hmm. and adding density um, versus how much net additional demand we've brought through migration and, and through growth and we sort of estimate that over the past 25 years we have a net deficit of just under 30,000 homes um, which is it doesn't sound like that big of a number in the context of a region. That's, you know, well over 2 million people. Um, but that's still just over a 25 year period. And, uh, you know, for the next five years at at the rate we're growing, we'd need to add, you know, another 30,000 homes net per year, just to keep pace with growth, let alone to deal Mm -hmm. with this deficit. Um, and the number, the, the number that sort of jumps out at me that 30,000 homes, uh, That equates, you know, again, using a 2.5 persons per household Mm -hmm. to around 74,000 people, which is roughly the size of the city of New West. So Mm -hmm. we've sort of underbuilt our region by over the last, just the last 25 years by about the city Mm -hmm. of New West in terms of population. Mm -hmm.
0: So we've talked about our first I, which is immigration. Let's move on to our next I, which is inflation. So this is something that I'm sure we've all heard so much about that we're not, uh, it's nothing new and we've experienced it a lot um, in the past while. Can you guys go into a little bit more detail as to the topic of inflation?
2: Yeah, I mean, we've talked about anybody who listens to this podcast knows that we we talk about it frequently Mm -hmm. because it is the... Almost singular thing that is defining um, the context for our economy, and then and then really for our housing market. And we'll talk about you know obviously the, Im- the impact of inflation on interest rates and where we see those going in a minute. But on the on the topic of inflation, um, yeah, again a defining feature. Uh, it peaked in Canada at eight point one percent last June, so in middle so June of twenty twenty two. And the annual rate of inflation has come down since then. The most recent reading, um, so this was for, this is February data, was 5.2%. So I think by the time this podcast gets released, we'll have another reading on inflation Mm -hmm. for March. And we are expecting that to uh, come in somewhere in the fours um low probably fours. Low, fours. low fours and low fours. i've been saying there's a ch- there's a chance <laughs> that it comes in at 3.9 but if it doesn't i never said that yeah. but i think <laughs> the point is that there was significant price escalation at this time last year and that's very germane to the understanding of where inflation might land this year because inflation at any given point in time the way that we calculate it prices today versus prices say last year um there's an equal weighting on where prices were last year as there are today. And we just haven't seen, like literally we've seen, we've seen almost no increase in the consumer price index between the summer of last year and where we are today. So that month to month inflationary pressure that really has defined our economic context uh, for the last couple of years after we sort of bottomed out in the early days of of the pandemic. Um, that inflationary pres- uh, that inflationary uh, pressure has been absent, and so every reading that we see on inflation today is is almost more of a reflection of where prices were last year than where they are today. So prices are higher today than they were last year, and in fact, they're not coming down. So mm-hmm. you know, wh- whatever we're paying at the grocery store, or we're paying for flights, mm-hmm. or we're paying for uh, households, um, furnishings, or whatever. It's, it's it's essentially going to be permanently more expensive but when we talk about inflation we're talking about how fast our prices rising and the pace at which they're increasing is definitely slowing so when we look at um, our forecast from of inflation from the end of last year um, we had followed we, we mapped out a path that saw inflation coming down into that one to three percent range that the Bank of Canada targets, that they ideally like inflation to sit within by summertime. And since then, we've had four or five or six um, uh, releases of inflation data, and each one of those has essentially followed the path that we had mapped out. So our forecast of inflation falling into the 1% to 3% range by the end of spring is still very much on track um, from an inertia perspective. That is where it is trending to go Um A lot of things can happen between now and then and then beyond then, right? So there are risk factors to inflation. Mm -hmm. Um, There is no predetermined path, that's for sure. I mean, we just had, I think it was last week or the beginning of this week, OPEC, uh, major oil producing countries, got together and agreed to an output cut, a production cut. So what does that mean? Well, it means that the price of oil is going to go up because of that. And that's Mm -hmm. just a decision that was made an unexpected one, and that will feed into inflation. So that's mm. something you're not gonna forecast, you're not gonna predict.
1: And over the last eight months, the price of oil has come down and that's been a big reason why the overall pace of inflation has slowed considerably.
2: Certainly, yeah. And so now it's <clears throat> we're seeing it in oil prices and in retail gas prices that the, the 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 prices are actually starting to increase again. So it's possible that that kind of action uh, delays the return of inflation to that, that band that the Bank of Canada is targeting.
1: Yeah, and on the flip side, like we talked in the last episode about some of the banking issues in the US. So if that were yeah. to continue or get worse, that would be, a you know, disinflationary pressures that could bring inflation down much quicker if, if credit really tightens up.
2: Exactly. And nobody, I mean, nobody was talking about um, uh, First Citizen or Signature or SVB. Mm-hmm. You know, collapsing or having any kind of issues, and certainly not Credit Suisse prior to what, a month ago. So unexpected things can happen, but I think that the trend in inflation is unambiguously down and to a very, very comfortable level. Um, and that's important. I think that's important in a broad macroeconomic context because we'll talk about the impact that that has or the implications that has for interest rates. Mm-hmm. But it also then is reflective of um, a reduction in price escalation across the board, and in a housing context, that's important for um, providers of housing, suppliers of housing, developers, because you look at the source of inflation. Like, where is that coming from? For for you know for those that are bringing housing to this market, much needed housing, they're looking at escalating labor costs. So looking mm-hmm. at Financing costs that are high because of high interest rates. Mm-hmm. Um, materials lo- materials yeah. are high yeah. for sure. Um, and so, you know, all of these things, they're not necessarily going to get cheaper, but what really matters is that they, like, w- what we need is some certainty around how much they're going to increase from where they are. And I think we're starting to turn the corner on some of these things. And I think that that is beneficial for a market like ours, where we just, we need more housing and the uncertainty really, really freezes activity in in
0: housing, there's no doubt about it. Okay, so we talked a lot about inflation and we talked a lot about the banking, you know, the oil costs and, and the housing market in general, but what the conversation we want to talk about right now is the expectation of inflation. Are you guys able to talk more about that?
1: Yeah, I think um, that's something that we still need to to watch Um, Inflation expectations are kind of funny in -hmm. that expectations can govern behavior, uh, which in turn can push inflation. So if uh, consumers expect high inflation, they're more likely to spend more and and accept higher prices and, and spend on them. They're more likely to ask for raises. The businesses are more likely to spend more on things, give them out um, and as a result, you, that can end up fueling inflation. So high inflation expectations can almost be this self-fulfilling prophecy where that actually pushes higher inflation. And right now, inflation expectations are really high in the landscape. We use the title uh, unrealistic expectations. Um, so <laughs> consumers' expectations, and they're, they're, they're from the uh, end of last year. We don't have Q1 data out yet. Hopefully, we get that soon. Um, but for one year ahead, the median consumer ex- expects 7% inflation, which we've been well below that for many months. Um, so obviously, we disagree with that. We think we're on a path to the Bank of Canada target range fairly soon. Um, and these consumers say you know 5% in two years, 3% in three years when the Bank of Canada said they will get inflation back to 2% by next year and 3% by the middle of this year. So. This is important and this is something to watch and certainly the Bank of Canada is watching and it's one of the reasons that I think that um, Tiff Macklin, the governor of the Bank of Canada, is out there saying very forcefully, we will do whatever it takes to crush inflation. Um, I I liken him to a parent driving a car and the kids are yelling in the backseat and he's threatening to turn (laughs) the car around. Like, if you don't behave, I'm going to turn this car around. In this case, he's saying, if you don't behave... I'm going to raise interest rates more. He doesn't want to do it. The bank is on that path where they're comfortable holding. but if if people get out of line and they and they think there's more inflation, they start spending that way, that you know they'll raise rates if they have to. but uh, I don't think that'll happen, but it, that I think that's why he's being so forceful in his mm-hmm. language when when the actual data the the results are are so promising. Uh, there's, they're sort of, uh, they're not in line with each other. And I think, I think expectations are the reason why.
2: Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think that is exactly what he's speaking to because the bank knows, I mean, who are we, you know, a couple of people here at a real estate company in Vancouver who are mapping out a path for inflation. And we basically hit it in each of the last, call it five months. Mm -hmm. And because it's not, it is not a complicated concept to consider the bank of Canada as right, you just said, Mm -hmm. their forecast is that we're going to hit 3% by summer. So we're actually not very different in our expectations there. But for them, the way to quash that one outlier, which is the expectations piece, which honestly can trump everything else. Like in a sense, expectations manifest in actual price increases in the labor market vis-a-vis wages. In oil prices and materials costs, because if everybody thinks prices are going up, sellers are gonna or producers companies are going to raise prices, and workers are gonna ask for raises, and they're gonna spend more. So really, the root of it is is at the expectation level, and so they are just every time there's a rate announcement by the Bank of Canada, they are going to speak to the need to get inflation down and, hey, everybody, you better watch out because if this gets out of hand, we're going to step in. I mean, the bank the bank has staked its reputation on bringing inflation down. We'll probably leave the topic of whether a 2% target for inflation is appropriate or not or empirically <laughs> sound for another day um, because there's really no evidence that we should be targeting 2% inflation. Um, but I think also the bank is aware of that as well. And so I think... I actually think there's a tolerance there for inflation running a little bit hot. Remember the range is one to three mm-hmm. percent. The target is two. So if we're running at three percent, it that that is not that's not an not an impetus for dramatic action on the part of the bank. I mean, that is that's at the that's in their range. Mm-hmm. So um, I you know, either way, I think the next, as we've said for the last couple of months, the next couple of months are gonna be quite pivotal. Because that's where we will likely see, um, you know, w- where we're going to end up for the foreseeable future. And as it stands now, we think that we're going to end up in a pretty good place.
0: I was gonna, I was just thinking as you guys were talking because I, I know that um, was it the minimum wage is also increasing as well.
2: Yeah, and we, well, we were also
1: talking like I want to look at um, for part-time workers hours worked. Like some businesses will cut hours, others will raise prices. So like at the margin, it's inflationary. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't think I don't think it's gonna have a huge impact because I think there'll be substitutions and things happening as well.
2: I also think, I mean, uh, an increase in minimum wage does not translate directly to an equivalent increase in prices because most um, companies, small or big, but more so small and medium, I would say, operate in fairly competitive spaces where they are not price makers. That includes housing. I mean, there's no developer, there's no seller of a home that makes their own price. I mean wouldn't that be a wonderful world if you are a homeowner and you could just pick the price that you could sell at. Well then you, they wouldn't
0: need us. Well I think the, <laughs> they wouldn't think need us yeah. that's for sure. Well I think that the, their margin just gets smaller and smaller. That's right? I think that that's
2: margin. the key. That's yeah. the key thing yeah. there where it's not to say there isn't pain because I think the it's the, um, it's the companies who are hiring the workers and selling the product or the service Mm -hmm. that have to largely absorb that because often there isn't room to just unilaterally increase prices because consumers can say, you know what, for the most part, not with everything, but for the most part, they can say, well, you know what, that thing that you're selling now is too expensive for me and I'm either going to buy less of it or I'm not going to buy it or I'm going to buy it from your competitor. Yeah. And like,
1: especially like retail. Where i think a lot of minimum wage workers work if you're a coffee shop Mm -hmm. a clothing store a restaurant it's hard to raise prices and even if everyone's starting to do it it takes one to not do it to sort of get that business and
0: well yeah and the chances are people perhaps if it gets too out of hand too expensive people may not buy it as often absolutely
2: so there's there's certainly a trade-off there right yeah
0: So this brings us into our last eye, which is interest rates. So this is obviously something that everybody's keeping an eye on. We've been talking a lot about it. Uh, Everyone's interested about it, particularly those that are, you know, interested in real estate uh, and possibly looking to buy or sell their home and figuring out what's what and when is a good time and what does that mean for them are you able to go into more detail about where interest rates might be heading or what mm-hmm. that looks like
1: yeah so we just had another Bank of Canada announcement the other day mm-hmm. um, they held again as, as yeah. we were uh, predicting I think most people were predicting a hold for, for April um, and so they're still maintaining that uh, policy rate at 4.5 percent. We th- we said a few months ago that would be peak and we'll see a hold for some time, uh, probably about six months or so total, which puts us as a bit of outliers in terms of um, how quickly we think they'll start to to lower them. Um, the interesting thing again, we were talking about the some of the comments from the Bank of Canada the other day. Uh, again, forcefully saying they want to crush inflation, essentially. Also, some mm-hmm. interesting comments regarding some of the different uh, dynamics and pressures at play, some of the stuff going on in the US and China, things like that. Um, but overall, the main message from their comments was uh, the current monetary policy is working, inflation is coming down, the economy is slowing. And I think that's really the big takeaway that w- we certainly agree with, which is that... Um, it's working. High interest rates are working to slow the economy and bring inflation down. And we are, again, we're on that path back to target range, again, sooner rather than later. Um, and so, where we go from here is there's now uh, going to be two more inflation data releases before the next Bank of Canada announcement. We expect two fairly sizable declines. And I would say probably inflation will be sitting just outside of target. Come June, so that'll be, we'll have April, March, and April inflation data, and we'll be just outside of target in June when they make their next announcement. I would say that will probably again be a hold, and then beyond that we'll see. We would expect cuts later this year. The Bank of Canada is saying cuts next year, um, but again, I think I think in June expect another hold. This is where we're we're headed.
2: There's definitely a perspective out there that hey, you know, why don't we why would we even contemplate rate cuts at any time in the near future until we know for certain that there's no chance inflation's gonna you know, come back and bite us? And I think it that perspective kind of ignores the hidden cost, which could become quite apparent, but it's just not yet, of higher interest rates. So we talk about when the Bank of Canada makes rate changes, so in this case rate increases, that it takes like 18 to 24 months mm-hmm. For those rate changes to fully sort of um, make their way through our economy and have their full effect. And it's like, well, why would that be the case? Well, one example is in housing, and you look at the majority of uh, borrowers, so, so homeowners who have a mortgage, they choose fixed rate mortgages right, for the certainty of the rate over the course of their mm-hmm. contract. Um, so as interest rates rise at a given point in time or over a period of time, there are many, many borrowers who are not actually contending with those higher rates, right as they're increasing. So for example, we've seen dramatic increases over the past year in Canada in the um, Bank of Canada's policy rate. that has impacted variable rate mortgage holders dramatically and right. You might have a few things to say mm-hmm. on that. But for the fixed rate borrowers, yeah. they're actually, for me- for the majority of them, they haven't actually had to contend with those higher rates mm-hmm. yet because they're still on their previous contract. So what's going to happen between now and call it the next three to four years, you're going to have all those fixed-rate contracts renewing. yeah. And many of them, especially in the near term, will be renewing at higher rates. So even if rates never go up again from where they are, or even if they come down slightly, we... For, for many, many borrowers across Canada in this region, they are going to be facing higher interest costs on their mortgage going forward. And so they just haven't had to contend with them yet. And that's going to squeeze out spending in other sectors of the economy. So that is going to, at the margin, reduce economic activity. And so at the margin, what that does, what the high rates do, the longer they're higher, is it's going to eventually lead to a deterioration in the labor markets, which means that basically the unemployment rate goes up. It means that people lose their jobs. It means that um, people aren't able to afford to be in the homes that they're in. And so there's a very like real personal human cost to all of this because mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. economists or analysts, we talk about – things in a very macro aggregate way. But the consequence of this high interest rate policy is that real people are gonna feel real pain.
0: Real people are affected by this. Absol- is, is absolutely, so
2: shame? so the question is, how quickly can we get rates back to a neutral, what, what they call a neutral level, like an equilibrium mm-hmm. level, and that's consistent with stable and, and low inflation? How quickly can we do that? And so the bank will be looking to do that. It's not a no cost policy to just keep rates where they are just to ensure that inflation comes down. It has to be weighed against the costs that are incurred of having rates this high. And so that's when we talk about rate cuts by the end of the year, mm-hmm. for some people they go, you're nuts. That's like not a thing that's going to happen. Um, meanwhile, other people say, you know the, the cuts are going to be double what you guys are are mm-hmm. forecasting. But I think the point is that as soon as inflation is deemed to be under control on some level, the bank will start to cut their policy rate.
0: It's a little bit of a glimmer of light for <laughs> us, right?
2: Yeah, I think we've turned yeah. the corner in a number of ways, like f- for our economy and our housing market. Mm-hmm. I think there's some definitely some green shoots out there.
1: Yeah, and Ryan, you were talking about um, how many people are fixed rate renewers. So uh, the number of households with variable rate mortgages has been increasing substantially, um, but it's up to about a third of total outstanding mortgage dollars. About a third of that is variable rate. And those borrowers have contended with those interest rate cuts as they've gone, or hikes rather, as they've gone. Um, but for those fixed rate borrowers, that's still two thirds of the outstanding mortgages out there. Uh, and fixed rates today are still on average less than the stress test was five years ago. Mm-hmm. So if you're a renewer, chances are you are stress tested to a higher rate Five years ago, when you got your mortgage, than you're facing today. That's a good point. So, you, and to ride your point, you're still going to feel pain because your your payments are going to go up when you renew, and no one likes that. Uh, and maybe, you know, circumstances in your life have changed. You've had kids mm-hmm. or you bought a new car or whatever, but chances are you were stress tested to a higher rate and you can afford it. Hopefully, you've paid down your balance, your wages have gone up. So, there will be pain in your household budget, but it's hopefully. On, especially on average, that's something that you can't afford. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And for those variable rate holders, uh, there's a few banks that offer a product that I think is a, a <laughs> lot of people didn't know existed. And, yeah. uh, you know, I didn't before a few months ago, um, which is, uh, so they all offer variable rate mortgages with fixed payments. So as the interest rate goes up or down, your payment doesn't change, but the amount of your payment that goes to interest versus principal does. And so you end up increasing or decreasing your amortization as those rate changes happen but some banks offer one where once you hit what will be your trigger rate where your whole payment is going to interest you keep that payment fixed anyway and so if rates increase again and your payment no longer covers your interest then the balance that you're essentially not paying just gets tacked back onto your principal and there's a couple of banks in Canada that offer that and there's a segment of mortgage holders out there in Canada today who their payments are not even covering their interest and their balance is growing almost like how some credit card companies do it and um, yeah so there is at one bank 52 billion in variable rate mortgages which is about 72 percent of their variable rate book currently in this state so there are a number of borrowers out there who are not covering their interest costs today. And that's certainly concerning and something to keep an eye on going forward.
2: So to bring this all back together here, uh, as we close this out, we know that inflation is and interest rates are higher than they've been in decades. Um, so we're still not really back to where we quote-unquote wanna be mm-hmm. as an economy and as a, as a housing market. But we talked earlier about how developers ha- are, are seeing a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel in terms of uh, – or as it relates to certainty with respect to costs or cost increases. And I think that you know we were talking it also applies to buyers and sellers, right? Mm-hmm. Real estate involves making for most people the biggest decision one way or the other – Financial mm-hmm. decision of your life, and so uncertainty really is paralyzing. Mm-hmm. And so we're seeing less of that. We're seeing that some of that melt away as inflation comes down, as interest rates stop increasing. Um, and I think now what we the way we're seeing that manifest is uh, more sales activity in this region, for sure. After a, a historically um, soft nine-month period mm-hmm. as it relates to sales. Um, what we're hearing from our uh, advisors, our realtors, is that uh, more and more people seem to be getting out, going out and getting pre-approvals and getting their financial house in order so that they're in a position to actually uh, mm-hmm. participate in the market when the opportunity arises. We're seeing more buyers mobilize. We're seeing them make purchases and also get ready to make purchases. We're not seeing that on the seller side yet mm-hmm. because people won't sell If they don't need to right now and most people don't need to the labor market is quite strong i mean two out of five household owner households in this region are mortgage free are not interest rate sensitive and the value of their home is not what it was a year ago so they're not not rushing to list their home if they don't need to so we haven't seen that supply response but we're starting to see a little bit more activity um, and a little bit more positivity um, around the market and i think With all the pent-up demand from the past year, and we talk about immigration and record population Mm -hmm. growth, um, I think that is going to stimulate activity uh, going forward. We just sort of need to see some of these other important elements like interest rates and inflation get back to where we're used to.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. And I think that I'm pretty excited to to meet you guys next month for the next podcast to dive into the data a little bit deeper as to what those findings might be and what that how that translates to the sales and um listing ratio, I guess you could call it, and the activity Mm -hmm. that's been happening in the marketplace for next month. Um, So this kind of wraps up our podcast today. We have talked about a few different topics. We talked about immigration, inflation, and interest rates, but that's just scratching a little bit of the surface of what the Rennie landscape is. If you want to dig deeper into the data, be sure to check out uh, the latest Rennie landscape on runnie.com slash intelligence. So be the first to receive information straight to your inbox if you want to register for intelligence updates and this brings us to a close thank you so much ryan and ryan for your time and for sharing your uh your thoughts and uh insights on what the rennie landscape is and we look forward to next month's podcast
2: Mm -hmm. thanks justine yeah Yeah. thanks
1: ryan thanks justine
0: the rennie podcast is a rennie production and is recorded on the unceded territories of the musqueam squamish and Tsleil-Waututh nations thank you for joining us If you'd like to learn more, all resources mentioned in the episode can be found on rennie.com.